from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern from the Wharton School. Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studio, looking out onto the University of Pennsylvania's famed Locust Walk on a balmy, spring-like, humid, 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 damp, damp, sticky, foggy, (laughs) February morning. This is Cade Massey, hosting this morning with my friends and collaborators, faculty colleagues here at the Wharton School, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, pretty well. We're going to be here for the next two hours. You guys can join us for this conversation. We'd love it if you would. Give us a shout, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Matt Datz, standing by for your email. Especially a good way to reach us if you're listening one of the times. If it's not 8 to 10 Eastern, it's a replay. We're replayed four or five times over the course of the week. It's a great way to reach out to us. We'll get back to you. But if you'd rather write than call, you can do that. We do respond to email real time. We have been known to read emails on the on the air real time, so you can reach, us, reach out that way. You can follow us on Twitter. We have an account up there. Handle is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We follow all our guests. We do some tweeting on all matter sports analytics. It's a good way to stay on top of the sports analytics world and in touch with the show. We have a, a, a kind of a well, we have a little bit extra, a little little boosted, an enhanced version of our guest this week. We always have guests in the middle of the show, the bottom of the first hour, top of the second. In this show, our guest is going to be, our second guest is going to be in studio. It's always fun when we have a guest in studio, don't you guys think? Yeah, I mean, it, I, I think there's something about you know the uh, actually it turns out and radio has taught me this that actually talking to somebody and seeing their facial expression and response it's a way easier way to converse. As it, t- <laughs> it turns out, visual cues are important to conversation. Spoken I mean, you as, can you can make do without them, but as only a statistician could put it, Shane. Yeah, turn, did, I, did turn, I break that down in a super nerdy way? Sorry are you uh, spending too much time texting and no? Well, I mean, I, I in fact I am, but you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the surprise with which you express yeah. this observation. Yeah. Yeah, you know, actual human interaction. What do you know? <laughs> what do you know? <laughs> well, speaking of human interaction, have y'all seen anything? Has anything jumped out to you in the world of sports or sports analytics over the last week since I've seen you last? Well, I'm not sure how much uh, all three of us are paying attention to the Olympics, but there's there's stuff going on there. Yeah, no, I, the Winter Olympics are pretty exciting. And, uh, and basically, the big story, I think, generally, is the United States is tracking way yeah. way what's way up with back that? way way back i thought the u.s was supposed to be great again what's what's going on here <laughs> what? if you're not in the what? studio looking at shane's face <laughs> you wouldn't notice the sarcasm yeah. canada's um, dominating man canada germany norway yeah, i mean can norway i mean i i guess these are nations that are always kind of at the top of the, so the, I the think standings that's, but that's the usa is mystery. usually up there yeah well, well, so is this a, a, a just random blip, or is there something systematic, and how would we know the difference between that? I mean, I think you'd have to know a little bit more about how, you know, I guess prep for this Olympics is gone, how funding for this Olympics is gone relative to other ones. 
Um, I know that. Uh, when was the last time the U.S. hosted actually? Oh, a uh, a Winter Olympics. Yeah, was it? Like it was Placid? I don't know when the, that. Yeah, was, I guess it has had, been quite a while. Or right? something in Utah? Salt Lake City. Oh, right, Salt, Salt Lake. Lake. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, no, I, I, there is something too. I just know Canada's performance. Um, basically, Canada usually is not like top three or whatever it is right now. Um, but the, you, when they hosted in Vancouver several years ago, they had a real kind of funding push. They put a ton of money, built a ton of facilities, you know, in Vancouver, for example. And that has sort of led to them having this kind of like post-hosting bump that's kind of pervaded mm-hmm. through several Olympics. Wow. Now, something like the U.S. usually does not need that. They usually no. put enough funding into sports um that you know hosting is almost kind of like that that hosting effect is almost irrelevant but the collapse of the maybe. us is 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 almost epic in terms of wow, expectation really? yeah i mean they're at 12 medals as of last night and which is almost 11 medals lower than expected by this point you're about 67 70% of the way through and that's just a really big residual to use the statistics term for being yeah. much lower than expected and, and what um, are those uh, uh, those expectations? I, I do know that people I think do it's just do done by, predictions by event by event. They just sum, sum up how many medals we, the United States team is expected. But, but oh, really? The... Is it actually done? Event? Oh, yeah, as, as yeah. opposed to because I mean there are a lot of really good people working on just sort of like going into the Olympics, predicting the number of medals for each country, right. just based on kind of past history, GDP, the usual kind of thing, population, the usual kind of aggregate things that yeah, actually those, predict metal counts. Usually those those forecasts begin with last last the previous Olympics well, of course. and make a very very small modifications. Right. Um and that's the just one 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 history? Did no, you, you know, no, they, they look over. at the previous ones and yeah. and and some kind of smooth and that's generally the forecast. But we know that the sort of expectations that you're referring to are not those aggregate ones. They actually no, are, are I think these are done forecasts. by by event by event. I mean, which is I mean, it, it, to do that properly is hard because oh, you yeah. have to put a probability on each on each uh, medal and then you got to sum the probabilities to get your expectation. Yeah, you can't if you know about each event, right? right? I mean, I mean, it's all yeah. pretty well known. We know who our competitors are. We know where they stand in the national rankings. Do, yeah, but we rankings. don't know. I mean, like, I don't do. Do, do, do I? Yeah, <laughs> do I know how good U.S. is supposed to be in biathlon? How about curling? I mean, that's an that's an issue. There, there. I always assume, <laughs> but again, this is I an mean, assumption based on previous past history, not based on the knowledge of the people actually involved in this Olympics. But the U.S. is usually top three in curling. Because it's one of the three countries in the world that, that curl. Well, so, yeah. So, what about the curling scandal? Is that is that relevant? Is is there was apparently uh, which which team was it? A Russian curler or was uh, accused of of doping hmm. to improve his shuffleboard? The Russians I don't are, understand this. The Russians are like the Patriots of the Olympics, man. They're always pulling something shady. Am I right? Uh, can you can you? Because I, I, I don't, even, I don't even understand how the Russians are still in this thing. I thought that they They're were not banned from bad. the Olympics, right, right. but somehow they just let them all in, and we have to do some kind of weird. Reference to them where they're not Russia, the they're Olympic just athletes Russians. from Russia. <laughs> um, but they're back, and apparently they haven't learned anything <laughs> from from this this recent like quote unquote like you know Shane, judgment. Shane, you're the only person I know who has actually curled in his life. Yep. So you are what, the other in, person. In, what, 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 what would doping do for yeah, you? Exactly, I exactly. don't even know, man. I is there I any mean, physical you sweep faster? Is it, is yeah, it, is I mean, it super challenging. They're, they're, no. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, 
<laughs> there is athleticism involved in the sense that sweeping does take effort, and I can imagine getting tired at that if I wasn't in shape, now, no, which notice, I'm not. Notice that this this but, is the guy who, who said last week that, that skating wasn't a sport. Figure skating's <laughs> figure not a sport. Skating, it's pageantry. Sport. It's pageantry. Well, Would you call, like, a, like, is a beauty contest a sport? Uh, no, but they... As because a, that's basically what figure skating is. No, no, it's not. I mean, I mean, it's got some athleticism thrown in, but athleticism... A lot of us is, athleticism. A, is, is not a sufficient condition for a sport. No, Yoga. You, you, you seem to be... You, you seem to have taken We've the, got the very strong this, position yeah. that if it's, there's it's, any it's, subjectivity, it's, it's not a sport. It's called a hot take <laughs> in the radio world, my friend. Oh, it's wow. called a hot take. I'm getting schooled by my younger colleague. Are there... Are, do we know what the U.S. is underperforming on any in any particular sport, or is it across all sports? Well, so, that, I, I guess if if these expectations really are broken down by sport, we should know this. I mean, yeah. I don't personally know it, but um, I know the I know I think skiing the has been disappointing, right? So is that supposed to be? And and I uh, is I, Schifrin done most of her events now, or Schifrin? What, Michaela? She she withdrew from I just, downhill. Yeah. I just know that, you know, I mean, people she were talking about her, so like she was supposed to be Michael Phelps. You know, the thing about, we were talking about investment in, t- in, in facilities. Michael Phelps, of course, had like 20 events to win medals then. But anyway. That's actually not true, but we can talk about that this in the is, summer. Now, this is an- <laughs> another issue that was raised last week, and the question was whether it was more impressive to compete in multiple swimming events or some other sport with yeah. multiple events, like skiing. And there's We some- have now an, an additional data point that's more impressive in skiing, because it Clearly, the person who tried to do it was not able to do it as well you know, as the speak, person who did swimming. Speaking of speaking of which, it's my, interesting how you, it is an interesting take, by the way. Yeah, it's it's a great question. Yeah, it's yeah. a great question. What's more impressive? I mean, and and uh, it also raises all kinds of subjectivity biases by people in the studio who have done one of these sports and therefore feels called to defend it. But I mean, you I agree do. that empirically, the way to we came up with the scheme to like where one could look at this empirically right which is just sort of like looking at the number of times say for example that the same athlete is able to compete it is able to top three in these different events right and and i i again i don't have not done this analysis but at least by based on my anecdotal is that it's easier in swimming because we've seen it happen many many times that the same athlete wins multiple events okay so it's skiing it seems a lot more rare swimming has a number of events that are very similar so if you're so one of the reasons why, yeah, yeah that well, yeah, it but does. it does have also a lot of different ones. So before we just to give a quick lesson in all sports and like like mm-hmm. running and uh, there's sprint and then there's medium and there's and there's essentially distance. And what's generally very hard in almost all sports that are of this type is to cross over and dominate two of the two of these categories. That's considered yeah, because sprint, sprinting and distance sprinting usually take distance, a different skill so, set or a different training right. set. So no one, no one does that. That you just don't see sprinters and distance dominate. But in swimming, it's they aid the sprinters by giving them about four so different the, the distances sprinters, that are still distances. No, so the sprinters have have relays, and this adds up to a number yeah. of extra medals. But what made Mike, Michael Phelps particularly great is he also he was dominated the sprint and he also dominated the middle, and that was that was. That's how he accumulated that many medals, which is very hard to Right, do. and I guess that's, the, by the middle, you mean the middle distance. The distances. middle distance, 400. Right, and I guess yeah. that's my argument, is that it's only swimming that has those middle distances as well. I no, mean, I mean, track and like field it, does, too. Well, but no, but track and field Nobody barely does, it. in the sense that, like, a, a, a really good sprinter caps out at basically three medals, because they've got the 100, the 200, and well, the relay. Now, assuming they're from right, Jamaica, those have are a considered. Good team. So here we can expand this on, on this idea. They do cap out at three because they can't break into the middle. The sprinters win sprints, 
and that the 400, which is the middle, and the yeah. 400 and 800, you'll never see a sprinter whereas, even come close. Uh, uh, and, and in swimming, you, that's what I'm saying. The argument, yeah, you can break into that because it it's doesn't more happen. similar. Only Michael Phelps did that. That was well, what about uh, Spitz? He didn't do it. So Spitz won like five gold medals, right? He, he won right? seven in one, in one, but over his career. No, Phelps didn't do it in one in, in one in one single Olympics. He did it over. He switched and do, started to dominate in the middle in other Olympics. Okay, but he was able to do that. Why is, you know, has, has, has anybody, has, I mean, nobody, nobody in track and field has ever done that? And therefore, I don't know. I would, my, my, my statement stands that it's harder to do in it's, track. It's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, no it's one did it. Phelps. Or, or for <laughs> example, <laughs> downhill ski. Nobody switched from downhill skiing to cross-country skiing. But Shane, this is an interesting point that Adi just said. I mean, if it's only one person who's ever done it, do we really want to use that accomplishment to diminish that accomplishment? Oh, no, no, no. No, not necessarily. But I don't think it's... I mean, maybe it's only Michael Phelps that's ever made this transition from like level. somehow like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the sprinting to these intermediary lengths. Mm-hmm. But many people have won across, you know, across, you know these quote-unquote different events i.e. the different strokes yep. and the different sprint distances. Well, People I, transition across those all the time. There was that woman last Olympics that won se- across several as well. I mean, this this type of thing happens all the time, well, that, right, that you have multiple gold medal winners or multiple top three finishers across many of these quote-unquote different events. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you one that doesn't happen that happened last week. It's my favorite moment so far was in the Super G, the women's Super G last week. Did you guys see this? So this is where Lindsey Bond, it was her first uh, competition since the 2010 Olympics, and she was and she drew the first spot, and so yeah. she had to make the first run down the, and she got bumped out pretty quickly. And then, the, the, and this is something you learn about and how they do these competitions. Apparently they, they you know, there's, 40 women who are going to come down the hill but they put the top 20 the world the top 20 world ranked skiers in the top 20 spots they they're randomly drawn but they are in the top 20 spots and so after the first 20 have gone whoever's on the the podium at that point is pretty sure they're going to be on the podium yeah. it's literally that the announcer said nobody in the next 19 have a chance why would they order it that way to, i think to to compress the the drama because you can literally, like, they had it yeah, on TV. Yeah, but I mean, I, why, why order, why, like, why not back end the top ones as opposed to front end? Right. I, maybe because there's a, I don't, I, first, I don't know the answer. Yeah. Maybe there's advantages or disadvantages to be on the hill. Like there's more, like, it's less icy or something like that? Yeah, right. I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know. Yeah. But 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 the point is that they have their podium set after yep. the first 20, and here comes this woman who's ranked, like, 24th or 25th in the world. She is a snowboarder. She she competes in the snowboarding competitions at the Olympics for the Czech Republic. And she wins the damn thing. Yeah. Out of the blue, she won the damn thing. Like, they're all celebrating at the bottom of the hill, and people don't know, know what happened. They're like, hold on, what? Huh? Someone from the second batch just is in first place. Yeah. Moreover, she was in first place by one one-hundredth of a second. Yeah. She won gold in the in the in the Super G by one one hundredth of a second. But she's a snowboarder. This is That's exactly amazing. what we've just been talking about. People don't make that jump. She ran the thing on borrowed skis. That's very cool. You know, Schifrin is supposedly bringing like thirty five pairs of skis to the Olympics because she needs that many. This woman's like, I don't need any. I'll just borrow somebody. <laughs> well, did she borrow Schifrin specifically? <laughs> well, I don't think that's true. Yeah. I think that I think that line came out, but I'm not sure that that's true. Anyway, that's my favorite so far. Yeah, Olympic that's moment. very cool. That's very cool. 
So Matty Dot says that the best gears do go first in the first run because in that case there are no grooves around the yeah. gates, and so it does okay. it, the the course isn't quite as worn down. But but Vaughn, it was supposedly a big disadvantage that she was the absolute first person to go. I see because they get information on the run. They hadn't even done a training run on the Super G course before, and so what happens? Coaches are paying attention. Skiers themselves are, of course, you know, talking back to their teammates who and saying this turn is especially bad or that turn is especially bad, and apparently it cost Vaughn because at the you know near maybe the last hard turn on the course, she lost it off to the right and it it took enough time off mm-hmm. and probably knocked her off the podium. Well, what what else? Any other events jump out to any mo- any moments that you've enjoyed so far? The men's hockey team got knocked out last night, but apparently there were never many expectations for those guys because they're so young. Yeah, I mean, again, it's 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 an interesting um, dynamic for the hockey, the men's hockey this year, just because the NHLers are not participating in it. Because normally it would be almost, well, I mean, not guaranteed, but Russia, the U.S., and Canada would be definitely the ones contending for the gold medal in this. But now that you don't have the NHLers, I think that kind of puts Canada and America especially at a disadvantage. The Mm -hmm. Russians, I think, are are still looking fantastic in in part because so many of their um, individual players are from the KHL, which is allowed Mm -hmm. to participate in this Olympics. Mm -hmm. Shane, how how good could we do if we we had some kind of enough stats on these players to, to predict how a team would do together? So this is kind of a, in baseball, you know, in baseball you can kind of just add it up. We don't yeah. expect there to be interactions. In ba- in hockey, it's much more like basketball, right? You have to think about these. Yeah, I mean, it's it's less interaction-y, if that's a word, um, or non-linear, I guess is the word, or non-additive. <laughs> it's less. It, it, it's more additive in hockey than it is in basketball. Is that I think right? I, I think so. Just because you have, uh, you know, multiple lines. I mean, you have only. Any one player is only on the ice for like a third of the time. Okay. Right? You have multiple lines um, where, and obviously the, the line, the people on different lines do not interact at all with each other. Whereas uh-huh. in basketball, it's essentially, you know, the same seven or so players Wait, that so play the is, entire game. Wait, so this is a fact about hockey I wasn't aware of. You, yeah. you don't typically play more than half, a third of the game. Yeah, I mean, because it's... it's, it's uh, it, have you watched a hockey game? It's, very, have, it, it's incredibly fast-paced. You couldn't be on the ice yeah. for very long. So, I mean, so how they, big is they the shift every two minutes or so. No, and, even and, and less, and, even faster, right? Three or four lines, typically. So okay. so a, a hockey team typically has three or four lines of forwards and maybe three lines of defense. Adi Weiner, we have to go to a game. Hockey, yeah. is, hockey is a sport where you... What, one thing one things that happens when you watch it on TV is you miss the line changes. Yeah. Yes. They, you, they, you don't, and it's a huge difference between watching the game in person for many reasons. But one of the reasons is you're very aware when you're in the stadium yeah. when guys are trying to get off the ice or getting off the ice. And it, I mean, that's a huge part of the game. They're changing all the freaking time. Basically, it's this weird sport because it's like you, you're either on the bench or you're giving 100% for yeah. a minute and then you rotate out and someone else gets up there and gives 100%. And I mean, there are certainly interactions within like like certain defensemen are kind of known to play well together. Certain forward, like uh, certain centers play really well with a particular winger and that they, they just have a good dynamic together. Right. That definitely happens, but it's less than, you know, basketball where it's basically they're playing well, almost the entire game. Is there together. any research that... that- tries to understand what optimal resting and, and switching is in all sports. I mean, I always thought when you watch football, it's so intense for the during the plays. And as the game goes on, it's more or less the same defense and offense. How much of a of a, an advantage or disadvantage would it be to start switching people out? It's and a, has it been studied? It's a fantastic question because there is variation in what coaches do on that. 
and um, I I haven't seen a study on it. I've got to believe people look at it, but it could be that it hasn't been looked at enough or systematically enough. Yeah, but, I mean, there are teams who have a philosophy of we're going to rotate, for example, our defensive linemen early in the game, mm-hmm. yeah. and so that they're fresher late in the game. And there are other teams who are like, no, we're, you know, big big games, big teams. We're going to lean on our guys. And it, there's a, there's, there is huge variation in how worn down teams are at the end. Well, yeah. the, the question that I have is that as, I'm about, I'm about football. as, yeah, as, no, I, as talent gets so I mean, impressive and also starts to push the, the, uh, a more uniform level, it, because you take, a, take an offensive line or defensive line, they're all so big, so strong, so trained. The secondary factors, like fatigue, start to dominate performance. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you level the playing field in terms of talent. So the guy who's going to come in and substitute for you mm-hmm. when you take your first team out, yeah. he's going to be almost as good. Not as good, but well, almost as good. And, and, and at least in I some think, average I just think sense. Team by that's team, that drop, and that's why it's such a hard analysis to do. Team by team, that drop-off can be relatively dramatic, right? Yeah, consider I mean, if you have one of the, say you had the top defensive lineman in the NFL. No, like, that look, guy what is happened, a lot better. Look at what happened mm-hmm. with the Dallas Cowboys this year. It was, I mean, you know, they basically won or lost on their offensive line. It was a very marked difference, you know, with, with they had one or two key injuries on their offensive line. And this is their offensive line. It's like three out of the five pro bowlers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they lost one or two of those guys, and all of a sudden, Dak Prescott went from having great games to getting to, sacked like right. s- five times by the same guy. But, but you would argue that with the high tech in- installations that are on the way in place, we should be able to measure fatigue in a more systematic way. A- absolutely, and in fact, on exactly this point, an under the radar announcement that was made, I think, in the last week or two, is that the NFL is going to make available to all teams. All the 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 player tracking data. Oh, great! In, in a way that it's ne- it's never been available before. Yeah. So in the in the past, they've they, I mean the NFL has these data on all players during the game, and they only give a team data on their own players. So they only know what one side of the ball is doing at any given time, and it's been a considered decision to do that because the the teams, the ownership, haven't wanted to get into this. Uh, arms race essentially on player tracking data so they've really restricted what's available and they just announced they're going away from that they're going to make all data available to all teams all the time and so the arms race is jobs fair for our students goodness yeah (laughs) it's a jobs fair if you're geared up the right way because this is a whole new world of sets as you guys know i mean the the people even the folks who were trained 10 years ago which are pretty young those guys aren't geared up to do what's needed to yeah for these new data yeah, this and, is really kind of like a more high throughput, um, kind of big data problem than mm-hmm. I think most sports analysts are typically and, and, trained to deal with. Right, and then I mean, you guys know better than me, but just working with spatial data, it's a different set of yeah. it's a different set of tools. Well, as, yes, I mean it's as you always have to extract the information and first, yes, right. and 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 then bring it down to something you can do some analysis with. And spatial data has so much, mm-hmm. and, you, and you don't know what you're exactly looking at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, but I mean, it's so exciting to sort of think about what they could do. You know, I mean, analyzing linemen, for example, in terms of like, you know, actually modeling a pocket around a quarterback, you know, as a, as a, as a kind yeah. of spatial entity. Exactly. And so you can imagine that raises questions about both offensive line performance and defensive yeah. line performance, but also the quarterback. Who, yeah. who functions well That's right. with, in a constrained pocket? In a constrained spot. Who, you who, know, like who the big bends of the world that are like still <laughs> yeah, making throws with guys hanging off them. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then the other guys with half happy feet that are going to yeah. run. You know, I, I've, I have advocated for some time to some teams that 
I don't know what they're going to do with these data, but they need to be getting into it and, yeah. and learning about the data. I, I feel, and this is a too grand an analogy, but I feel it's a little bit like space exploration. It's like, we don't know what's going to come of it, but yeah, let's put a guy on the moon because we know it's going to spin off all these positive consequences that we can't predict. We like just, Tang. <laughs> we wouldn't have Tang without the space program. <laughs> I mean, as, as a particularly poignant example. Do people still eat tang? No, no I, don't so. No. I don't think so. I don't think so. That was a '70s thing, man. That was awesome. Does, does McDonald's still produce? Uh, when when I was a kid, and like I would have like events like Cub Scouts or whatever, there would always be this like giant thermos of like McDonald's that orange drink that McDonald's used to give out. You know, like like produce you this <laughs> no, orange drink. We don't I think know. they phased it out. It was basically tang. <laughs> it was basically tang. tang. <laughs> I, I, I guess this is something from my it's youth that nobody else remembers. Shane, listening to you talk about your youth makes me wonder. I mean, like, look. The, that I just the, made it all up. <laughs> the the women's hockey final is is tonight, and it's U.S. versus Canada. So it always is. You're going to be pulling for Canada. Is that the way it goes? Yeah, how strongly? How strongly do you feel? I mean, in that one, um, I mean, I'm definitely going to be pulling for Canada. I think it'll be a little bit... If America wins, I will f- not feel too bad because America usually loses that game. I yeah, mean, they, I mean, they ca- have the Canadian they're team, really kind of tortured by Canada. The at Canadian this point. team is on a twenty-four game winning streak. Yeah, and the U.S. has not won a title in twenty years. So, so it's, so it's, it's, it's like the Patri- it's like the Patriots Eagles, right? I mean, it's it's uh, of course, I, you know, in, in that game, I was cheering for the Patriots and very much wanted to win, and I was disappointed that they didn't. But you know, I I, I was able to I was able to enjoy it would be you know the the, the the sort of historically down downtrodden team finally you know overcoming now there's no there's no women's professional hockey league in the united states i no. would guess is there any is, is there such a thing in canada Mm-mm. no so well, where do these where do these women come from college college and in fact they play with each mm-hmm. other a lot this is one of yeah. the cool things about the event and the sport is that these guys are college teammates and, yeah and uh-huh. they, they know each other very well yeah, and I guess they know that the Canadians are better. And there's well, and there's just a lot. I, I mean, at least historically, over the last like few Olympics, there's been. I mean, because there's been so many close calls and cl- amazing games, and there's been a real rivalry that's built up. I, I I get the sense that the American and Canadian women's hockey players really just like do dislike each other. Really? Yeah. No. How yeah. do you get that sense? Yeah, when, does it change when they put on the uniforms, or do they not like each other when they're playing for Harvard or something? Oh no, I think it's more at a national level. Like I think it is sort of uh-huh. a na- at a national rivalry level. Okay, I so mean, no, I mean, I, I'm the sure they don't like each other. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, right. Or, 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 you know, they, they, the Americans. I, I just watch interviews where the Americans are, are really keen on beating the Canadians <laughs> in that cold medal game. I mean, it's, like, this more, is this is. Grossly stereotypical, probably, but don't you think women are generally nicer competitors to each other? I mean, Tanya Harding aside, oh, man. Then, I, I, then, I don't then, know. I don't, I don't think about I that. I think they don't, don't do know. the the bravura that you get out yeah, of the men's side, but I think they're just as more, competitive. I think there's yeah. a more of a sisterhood. I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I don't know. Damn, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I literally wouldn't know. But you know, uh, I, I don't get that sense. I don't know necessarily. I, I don't know. You never watched Mean Girls, did you? Well, that's a different thing. That is a different thing. That is a different thing. Another way to put it, more supportive of their competitors in, in sports. I mean, you know, you, I think you see better spirit among 
for example, the the the, the skiers. Yeah, I th- well, I think there's less at stake in some some level. I mean, this is uh, oh, that's interesting. If you think about men's athlete, athleticism, is uh, is a, is a professional. So you're this is your livelihood. This is your fame. This is so much more is is at risk. You could counter argue the other way. The fact that they do not have a professional league, they can't just go back and win whatever the women's hockey version of the Stanley Cup is. You'd think the Olympics actually would mean more. No, it, it's in the sense that it's 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 more in the in the global in the historical sense of the Olympics. Uh, a great competition it's uh mm. we're going to aspire to up these lofty goals and ideals but frankly in the men's side not not in the, necessarily the olympics but in men's athletics i think we were talking more generally this is livelihood this is this is fame this is fortune mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that can really possible. add a possible we, we are we're definitely in the space of speculating i think yeah. we probably shouldn't yeah. be are there any sports left in the in or any events left in the Olympics, as we wind things well, down, plenty that of that there's you're some looking, skiing, there's looking skating. forward to. Um, well, I'm sure. We I mean, hockey. I hockey, think. Yeah. No, the, the finishing you, up of hockey. So even though to. the U.S. and Canadian teams are that weak, you're looking forward to. Or, oh yeah, I mean, well, a the Canadian team is 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 weak relative to what it could be with the NHLers. It's actually still. I, I think they'll still give the Russians a run. All right. So uh, we want to let people know that we've or got the, a lot athletes from Russia. <laughs> well, whatever, whatever they we have mar- to They even marched together when they came in. And the I don't get well, I mean, what 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 is, what what is up with it. Well, well, how I don't understand the punitive nature it's, of this it's, thing. It's this is typical international sports association, yeah. right? I mean, there's just no teeth to these organizations. Well, NCAA is the same way. I mean, they're just they're just. Well, you hear about NCAA just extracted the titles from Louisville. Yeah. yeah. I mean, five years what, worth. What do you have but, I mean, to what, do? But, but, this, right. so wait, come on, if, they, if you didn't with Louisville, well, then, this is the one thing that they seem to uh, go after, which is violations of recruiting and, and money and things like this. Is there, the NCA is big on that? Extreme ones, yeah. only these extreme ones. I mean, Louisville's. I mean, my God, what they were doing down there. I mean, it, it, that it's it's kind of the exception that proves the rule. These guys just don't do anything unless literally you're damn near running prostitution rings to get your athletes you get your to, athletes your to school. Come. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and passing big money. Uh, speaking of basketball on the, on the, on the, and college hoops, we have Ken Palm coming up. Ken Pomroy is our guest in the next half hour. He is a, a real innovator and one of the leading analysts in the college basketball world. It's and time to start cycling up for March Madness. That's we, the next thing, that's right? The thing. That's, that's the next thing on the docket. That's why we're bringing Ken on to get up to speed. We've been distracted all fall by football, and then right as football wound up, we had these Olympics blasted at us, yep. and uh, we're going to have some March Madness here in just a few weeks, and so Ken's going to get us up to speed on that. And then, of course, we have at the top of the hour, Annie Duke. Annie Duke is one of the all-time great poker players and one of the first real successful female poker players. She's got a new book out, and she's from the greater Philadelphia area, and she's going to be in studio talking with us about about her career and her book, which is exciting. So that is one quarter of the show. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. The ball is Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my colleagues, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. I'm not sure who broke into the sound room and gave us that music. It's new. It's different. Maddie Dots wants credit. I'm not sure why. Daniel Bruno saying, not me. Not me on that music. We are one quarter into our show. You can join the conversation. Give us a ring, one eight four four wharton you may not want music tips from Eddie Doss, but he will answer the phone. one 942 7866 You can also email us 
businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Of course, that was one shining moment, and Matt picked it up because we're going to talk NCAA hoops. My God, it's been forever. We have been distracted by football. We've been distracted most recently by the Olympics, which is a distracting thing. But we're well into the college basketball season. We're going to have one of the great sporting events in the U.S. each year coming up in just a couple of weeks, March Madness. Because we've been so distracted, we feel uneducated about the 2017-18 basketball season. Who do we go to, guys, who do we go to to get educated on college hoops? None other than Ken Pomeroy. Ken Pomeroy, good morning to you and welcome to the show. Yeah, good morning, guys. Thanks for having me on. We're delighted to have you on back on the show. Appreciate you being here. Where are you calling from this morning? I am calling from Salt Lake City. Ah, right, right, right. Ken that means pa- it's very early. Yeah, we always appreciate it when you West Coasters or Mountain Time folks are willing to jump on with us. So thank you for making the time. Ken Pomeroy, of course, is the creator of a very popular college basketball website and, more importantly, statistical analysis. You can see his work at KenPom.com. He invented some statistics in basketball that have really revolutionized basketball analysis. It's picked up not just by fans but by teams, probably – the committee who sees the tournament, I'm guessing. We can talk a little bit more about that. But Ken's been very influential in the basketball world for some time now. Ken, can you tell us a little bit? You've got – we, we want to jump into the season. and kind of the, we, the, the number one reason for getting you on here is literally to get us up to speed on college basketball. But you've got such an interesting background. And, and one of the things we try to hit on the show is how do people get into this, into this space? How do, how, do, how do these things happen? Lots of folks are interested in it. You came from – the the weather world right and and not only that but you started this work you were still full-time in in atmospheric science so can you tell us a little bit about how you got going and and that transition yeah uh yeah i got going about uh 15 years ago or so um just kind of on my own as a hobby rating different sports you know really trying to kind of imitate uh jess zagren's work he was uh, kind of a big inspiration growing up i always loved you know looking at his ratings for various sports and uh mm-hmm. wanted to kind of copy what he was doing not necessarily because i thought i could do anything better but i thought i could maybe use a similar method to rate other sports that he wasn't rating but um but eventually i kind of drifted into college basketball and uh followed uh the work that was going on on the baseball side you know 2002 2003 2004 um uh, obviously, the the book Moneyball uh, definitely inspired me as well. So, uh, so that's where I got started. I mean, when I was uh, you know in college, there wasn't a, such really such a thing as a you know sports analytics position. You know, I, it wasn't even a thing you really uh, dreamt of doing. So uh, it didn't even cross my mind that it was possible to kind of make a living in uh, you know college basketball crunching numbers. But uh, right. things kind of things kind of evolved that way, and uh, you know eventually the site became popular enough where uh, um, that's just uh, that's just what ended up happening. How would you relate your work in as a meteorologist to in sports analytics? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's definitely some crossover there. And I, you know, I tell people when I'm speaking to a larger audience that, you know, half jokingly, but it would be kind of nice if uh, everybody that got involved in, in sports analytics kind of had to serve like a one-year uh, term as a meteorologist. because <laughs> Really? Yeah, I mean, it really like just tests your... Uh, predictive abilities. Now, you, all meteorology is making predictions, and mm-hmm. ultimately, uh, you know, it's a lot of probabilistic predictions. So mm-hmm. uh, you kind of learn, you know, how confident you can be in certain situations, and um, 
you know, you learn what it's like to be wrong on a very, you know, kind of public stage, even though, like, I wasn't a, a TV meteorologist. I was working for the government. But still, you know, you're making a forecast, and then you see your your prediction basically play out and affect, you know, everybody around you in some way. Um, you know, it, there's a lot at stake there, a lot more at stake maybe than predicting basketball games. So, right, uh, right, right. Well, another yeah. thing that, 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 that happens in weather that is a neat lesson for the rest of us is that you use these – a portfolio of models you blend i'm curious actually there's a lot of ensemble modeling yeah, yeah that's right they're and, and and they've become explicit about it you know in the past people just said here's the hurricane forecast and now they'll give you a, a, a what do they call them a, a spaghetti looking graph with like 10 different predictions and there it's an ensemble and the to the layperson this is surprising that you would just blend these things together or you would have the ability to say you know, I've got a model, but I'm also going to use the, you know, British B model or whatever you guys call it. Can you talk a little bit about using ensembles? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, spaghetti plot is, uh, is what you're referring to. So it's just kind of like a, an overlay of uh, multiple models. And uh, uh, you can get a good feel for uh, the uncertainty in kind of what the models are predicting. So sometimes the models are in uh, an ensemble you're talking about is in very good agreement. And uh, the spaghetti plot is uh, kind of in line with each other. But um, other times it literally looks like a spaghetti bowl and, uh, you know, the lines are, are all different and models are kind of forecasting a bunch of different things uh, amongst themselves. And so that gives you a, you know, a really good feel for, uh, like I said, the uncertainty and, uh, and how much confidence you can really have in, in any individual model uh, for that particular forecast. You know, but I, I remember looking at these models a lot and there, the, there's a difference between the different forecasts made by the different models and the uncertainty in a single model, and if you really want to get the uncertainty, it's got to actually actually be a, quite a lot bit wider than the than the models themselves. And I see that misunderstood because if you get say six different tracks of a hurricane and they're all kind of in some range and diverging at you know usually distant distance from where they where you actually have the hurricane, that's not the 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 model uh, inaccuracy. Those are those are just the forecasts made by different models, and that, that's different thing. And and it's and and so the total variance is actually much bigger. Yes, uh, that's true. This is, yeah, this is an area that is, uh, um, I think, not even necessarily well understood by a lot of meteorologists. Certainly, people at the, the National Hurricane Center understand it, but uh, it's a, um, yeah, it's a very difficult concept to to understand. You know, um, first of all, like a lot of times the models, even as a group, are maybe overly uh, certain. Uh, that's not exactly the best way to put yep. it, but. Um, you know, they, they tend to forecast the same thing a lot. The actual word kind of escapes me at this early hour. But, right. uh, um, but yeah, like you said, you know, those, those aren't, like, all of the possibilities. And you do have to understand that if, if you're looking at a, an ensemble of 10 or 15 or even 20 uh, different solutions, that, uh, you know, there are still more solutions out there that aren't being forecasted. So there is even maybe a little more variance that is being uh, depicted. So I, while I understand their limitations and they can be a little deceptive, I have to say, come on, guys, this is so much better than what we typically do. I mean, more more industries than meteorology should use this kind of explicit ensembles, and, and there should be more representation of differences of opinion. We should embrace this thing before we start critiquing Well, that, no, it. of course, but, but you know, forecasting hurricanes and weather is really hard. <laughs> it's just a really, as really is, hard as problem. As is hiring friggin' assistant professors in statistics. It is, and, and there's far, well, listen, there's uh, probably more at stake with the weather. <laughs> yeah, but I'm saying that we all, we, as hard as that is, it's, it's, it's actually representative of how mm-hmm. hard prediction is in the rest of the world. And we, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, don't, I, I mean, I think it, I, right, I mean, I think to a certain extent, it, uh, 
meteorology has got to be kind of a humbling prediction experiment uh, as experience. They all th- as be, they really? all, sh- uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm completely with you. That's that's one of the lessons I'm sure meteorologists do take yeah, into yeah. other domains, and that's maybe why we should have this one year kind of you know program. Instead of sending our, our, our young statisticians to the army, we send them into meteorology okay. or something like that. Ken, can I ask a question of your of your weather experiences and, and maybe in general? Um, one of the things that that is is not done very often is back publicly um, back testing or, or, or reporting your historical forecast to get some sense of of accuracies. And and I know this doesn't happen nearly as much as we'd like it in in sports. And 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 does it happen in weather? Does is there any sense that this is how accurate your forecasts have been in the past? And 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 is that portrayed in any way or recorded in any way? Yeah, when you do these ensembles, do you kind of like weight the different models slash teams by how they've done in the past? Yeah, uh, there is work that goes on there. Um, both uh, in terms of the models themselves and kind of how the forecasters interpret those models in their own forecasts and how ac- accurate those are. Uh, weather, doing that in weather is also uh, probably more of a challenge than it is in other fields because there's actually kind of two uh, two aspects of uncertainty. Uh, you know, one is kind of spatial uncertainty. So, like, if you forecast a hurricane to hit Louisiana and it hits uh, Texas, you know, there was some error in the in the spatial track of the forecast. Mm-hmm. But... There's also what's called temporal uncertainty, which is uh, error in the time portion of the forecast. So mm-hmm. you might have uh, been correct in saying the hurricane will hit Louisiana, or the mo- model might have been correct, but it was uh, off by a day or something like that. Um, so how you handle and, and judge those two situations is uh, another challenge, and how you score that is a challenge. Uh, there's, right. uh, as you can tell, multiple challenges in, in assessing forecast accuracy. So that, too, is a, a difficult problem to kind of get your hands around. It, it really does sound like the perfect training for prediction in other domains, including what you've wandered into, which is sports and, in particular, basketball. We're talking to Ken Pomeroy. Ken, of course, is the creator of a college, football, um, college basketball analytics. You can see his work at KenPom.com. Ken, before we transition to the, the current season, which we'd love to, to get to and how you're thinking about the tournament, Let's, can you give us a, a summary of what you're doing with your stats? I think of your stats as being efficiency-based. You kind of you introduce the, the, the notion of pace of play and, and norming statistics for pace of play to the basketball world, which is a huge contribution. What are you, it, to what extent is that right for capturing what, you, what you've done? And, and what are you working on now? Like, What's the frontier that you're working on at the moment? Uh, yeah, um... So you are correct. Uh, uh, you know, I'd say that you know, my my overall rating system is, uh, I think, pretty good in terms of being predictive. But it's you know, it's not necessarily particularly special over some of the other work out there. Um, the difference is that it's a little more descriptive. Um, so instead of just providing you necessarily with one overall rating, which does exist, um, I provide you with a you know an adjusted offense and adjusted defensive rating, which is based on the efficiency, the points per possession that you're talking about, and so. Uh, you can get a feel for uh, why a team is good or why they're not good um, in my particular model. So uh, as far as, like, frontiers go, I don't know that it, there's necessarily uh, anything terribly special. I guess, like, the big project for me this year was trying to assess home court advantage, which, um, you know, is a big deal in all of sports, but it seems like it's particularly uh, appealing in college basketball. People love the, the home crowd and kind of uh, the cases where a team, you know, makes a big run against uh, – uh, a team that they're uh, an underdog to because the crowd's behind them. Yeah. How, how big is the home field advantage in college basketball? Yeah, it's uh, probably um, 
you know, somewhere around three and a half points. Uh, you know, it's and the percentage, the can you give us a, what's the, what's the percentage of home games won? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, in conference games, it's, uh, roughly 60, 61%. This year it's been 61%. Um, wow. okay. Yeah. And then how much, how much heterogeneity is there? I mean, the, the famous places, you know, Fog Allen or Cameron, are these places truly bigger? Are the advantages there bigger? Yeah, it depends, you know, where you're talking about. I mean, generally speaking, it seems like uh, courts in the Big 12 are, uh, you know, as far as the conference goes, like they have the most home court advantage huh. um, among power conferences. But the range in all of college basketball, at least the range that I get from my model, is uh, 1.5 at the, at the weakest home courts. You know, we're talking about really small schools, mm-hmm. um, you know, that obviously aren't uh, teams that necessarily see in the NCAA tournament. And, uh and the highest is 4.5, so um, so the overall range is about three points across teams. And did you find, we've looked at that in football before, in professional football, and we've, we, we have a hard time seeing it persist year to year. Like, you know, Seattle had famously, supposedly, a bigger home field advantage a few years ago. They had an extra man, for goodness sakes. For goodness sakes, and it, do, it doesn't seem to be the date anymore. Don't know where that man went. Did you, How much persistence, I can imagine there is more persistence in college basketball, but were you able to show that, Whoever in the Big 12, if you're in Lubbock or whatever, that is, they have a big advantage this year. They're fired up this year. But was it there two years ago? Will it be there two years from now? Yeah, I mean, that aspect makes, uh, makes it an enormous challenge to try to detect. <laughs> you know, what, how do you detect an important advantage? I mean, do you really? There's not that know, much data. Other than looking at the final score, right? And there's only, uh, especially in conference play, there's only eight to ten home games. So right. you're going to see a, a lot of noise from year to year in terms of how successful each team is at home. So it, you know, I really, to, to calibrate the model, I had to pull, like, multiple years of data, both for the right. training set and then the, the predictive part of it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's some variance, but when a team wins by 20, you know, how much of that is their home court and how much of that right. is, is their own skill? Right, right, right. We're talking to Ken Pomeroy. Ken, of course, is the very famous with it was for his basketball analytics. You can see his work on KenPom.com. This is the time of year where I bet you could do radio spots all day, every day for the next month. Um, speaking of which, can you get us up to speed on the two? Consider us, you know, interested, um, happy basketball fans, but we haven't. We've been on Mars for the last six months. What would you tell us about the 2017-18 season? What do you think is most important to know, and and what are the the storylines going in, ramping up to the tournament? Yeah, you know, I, I think the main thing is we've kind of seen this trend. You know, I think people are familiar with the the one and done era in college basketball where. Uh, the best players uh, from high school are essentially required to play one year of college basketball before they go to the NBA. And uh, the schools like uh, in this uh, in this year's case, Duke and Michigan State and you know Kentucky are the teams that uh, have kind of cornered that talent. And Kentucky has struggled, but Duke and Michigan State uh, at the beginning of the season were basically favorites to win the title, and um, they've been very, very good this year, but maybe a, a tad bit disappointing to this point. Um, so it's you know there's always kind of this. Uh, competition now basically between schools like that and then you have schools this year like uh virginia and and villanova and maybe to a slightly lesser extent purdue who uh are more um experienced and don't necessarily have like high level nba talent on their teams but have had very good seasons and uh kind of are also in the mix to uh to make a deep run in the ncaa tournament so it'll be interesting to see you know kind of which uh situation ends up uh, winning out this year can we do a follow-up on that on that storyline do your analytics suggest one of those models is better than the other and especially i mean what ultimately people care about is the tournament is you know you could 
the the cl- the classic story, the one that they'll tell about the Virginias and the Purdue's of the world this year, is that the you know battle hardened seniors and and all of that, and they're supposed to be better under pressure, and they work so well as a team no matter the circumstance. Is that true in the data, or do you would you rather have, you know, the number one recruit in the country as your as your postman? Yeah, that's um, that's a really tough thing to kind of separate. Uh, I mean, ultimately, at the end, you want. You want talent. There's obviously some benefit to experience, and you can you can detect that. Um, you know, holding talent, or uh, I guess holding other factors equal. You know, you look at the more experienced teams; they tend to be better. But mm-hmm. uh, obviously, if I have significantly more talent than you, then you can have all the experience in the world, and that might have some small advantage. But my talent is going to overwhelm you. So, um, you know, it, you know, we saw it last year. Basically, you know, we had Gonzaga and North Carolina that ended up in the national title game, and it was kind of similar. North Carolina did have some experience, so it wasn't like they were um, really your typical one-and-done team, but um, they had more kind of raw talent than Mm -hmm. Gonzaga did. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, ultimately they prevailed, even though maybe during the regular season uh, Gonzaga, you know, outplayed them when it came down to crunch time when everything was on the line. uh, Ultimately the the talent won out. What is – I'm looking at the rankings right now, uh, and how do they compare to what the preseason forecasts were for most of these top teams? So let's just real quickly, your your top ten goes – UVA, Villanova, Duke, Michigan State, Cincinnati, Purdue, North Carolina, Texas Tech, Gonzaga, and Auburn. And how does that differ from what the, what the preseason you're, you're, would have suggested? Yeah. So, I mean, the one area where I, I kind of pat myself on the back, I guess, is uh, with respect to Virginia, who um, you know wasn't ranked in the AP Top 25 preseason. No kidding. Well, there you go. And yeah. what did you do? You actually had them up there? Yeah. Yeah, I actually had them ninth. So, uh, wow. That was, yeah, that was kind of the real win. You know, uh, um, yeah, there was certainly some skepticism early in the season, even for myself. Like, I thought, hey, you know, this team's lost quite a bit of talent. They had a few transfers. Um, you know, had a lot of new people that really had to kind of take on larger roles this year. Uh, but um, the system that Tony Bennett has has long been successful for being, you know, really good defensively. And this year it is incredible defensively. And so uh, that has really propelled them to uh, – at least having, you know, in terms of their on-court play, the best season so far. Ken, real quickly, the the cutting edge, and it's been a while, so maybe it's not even cutting edge anymore, but with NBA and analytics is basically at the player level. They'll do everything at that level and then aggregate up. I'm assuming that's impossible at college. There's just not enough data to work from that from that kind of bottom-up approach. No, that is uh, not true. In fact, you know, so my preseason ratings are, are fairly – Primitive. I mean, it's actually amazing how like quickly the that sector of college basketball analytics has grown. Because when I, I think I did my first preseason ratings in 2011, and I thought, you know, wow, this is like really groundbreaking. You know, it's, it's so difficult to kind of like put all this information together and put out a, a, a preseason rating that um, makes you know some kind of sense. And, uh, and since then, you know, there's been probably a dozen people that do this. And uh, I think the most, most noteworthy is Dan Hanner, who does this work for. Uh, uh, annually for Sports Illustrated, and uh, he actually does a player-based preseason model. Um, wow. Some of the information is limited. Like, it's really hard to, you know, get the, the roster from some of these small schools and know who's leaving and who's coming in and, and what their history is. But um, for the bigger schools, it's it's pretty possible. There's enough information out there that you can do that. And, uh, um, you know, his, his model is – you know, marginally, I'd say more accurate than mine for, for preseason ratings. Got it, got it, got it. Well, we're 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 down to just the last couple of minutes with you. We're curious what you're anticipating going into the tournament. We're, we're of course a couple of weeks away yet, but people are thinking about it. The seeds will the seeds will be a point of discussion. But who are some teams you think we should keep our eyes on as we go into the tournament? 
Yeah, well, I, you know, outside of those five that I mentioned, I mean, I think, you know, like I said, Virginia, Villanova, Purdue, and then Michigan State and Duke, those are uh, good bets. And then Cincinnati is kind of a sixth team. If you look at my ratings, there really is, like, kind of a, a top six and then a pretty big separation to the seventh best team. Okay. Um, so, I, right. you know, I don't know what the chances are that the, the, the champion uh, comes from those six. I haven't crunched the numbers. It's still probably less than 50%, but um, – uh, you know, that's a pretty good group, I think, to follow, and, and you know, multiple teams uh, from that group should get to the Final Four. What should I tell my brother-in-law out in Lubbock, Texas? He's a diehard Longhorn until it comes to basketball, and, he, and he's a season ticket holder in Lubbock. He's so excited about the way things have been going this year. He says it's never felt so good out there. Of course, their star player has, has had a recent injury. So assuming he comes back, what, what chances does Texas – and that's the Big 12. You talked about the Big 12 having home court advantage. They've been unexpectedly good this year. What kind of chances do you think they have? Uh, pretty good. I mean, their, their head coach, Chris Beard, is a, a pretty amazing dude. He uh, basically has you know, coached NCAA basketball for three years at two different places. So a total of three years. And it looks like he's going to have like the best program <coughs> in school history at, at those two places that he coached uh, just wow. in that short time. But, uh, yeah, I would, uh, I would say um, Texas Tech is very good. They're going to have a huge test on, uh, on Saturday against Kansas, basically uh, a lot the conference regular season title basically riding on that. But, um, I mean, overall, they've been extremely good defensively. And as you mentioned, uh, their point guard, Keenan Evans, is kind of their star. And he, he has a little bit of a foot injury. Hopefully it's not serious. And if he's able to come back and be healthy, uh, this is a team that, uh, you know, really can make some history for that program this year. Ken, t- topic for another day because we're out of time, but you twice have mentioned coaches here. How well have you been able to parse coach effects? And, we're, and we can only grab a quick second from you on this, but is that something you're able to look at very closely? Uh, the main thing is with coaches is that they're what they do, like their teams are, they have certain styles and those styles are really predictive going forward. It's hard to find the coaching effect itself, but you kind of know how a team's going to play heading into the season based on their coach's history. Got it. All right. Listen, Ken, really appreciate you taking the time. Love your work. Wish you the best with this next month coming up. All right. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. That was Ken Pomroy, Ken, creator of basketball analytics. And you can find his work at KenPom.com. Repeat guest for us. Always a delight to talk basketball with Ken. That's the first half of the show. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. It's Kate Massey hosting this morning with my friends and collaborators, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner. You can join the conversation. Give us a ring, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. It's an especially good way to reach us if you're listening one of the four or five times we're replayed over the course of the week. We'll pick those emails up on a Thursday or a Saturday. We can also pick them up during the show. You can you can call us right now. You can follow us on Twitter. We're in the Twitter world, have been for a little bit now. Our handle is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We follow all our guests. We tweet about sports analytics. It's a good way to stay on top of the world of sports analytics. Just off the phone with Ken Pomeroy, which was great fun, and now welcoming as a guest in this half hour and a guest in the studio, which is an extra pleasure, Annie Duke, former highly competitive poker player, professional poker player, and author of a new book, a book called Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have 
all the facts. Annie, of course, won the inaugural World Series of Poker Tournament, defeating 10 world champion opponents. And over the course of her career, I think she wound up retiring in 2011, 2012. Over the course of her career, her winnings exceeded $4 million. Very successful. And I'm told at the time she was the only female poker player at those final tables and really an, no, a, a well, pioneer. That's not – there, there, were, there were definitely other women, but uh, uh, some great women, people like Jennifer Herman, uh, Liv Bury, Vanessa Selps, who's, like, amazing, who actually just uh, – left poker to go work at Bridgewater with Ray Dalio, which Seriously. is, like, incredible. Yeah, she's so smart. And also, by the way, she happens to have a law degree from Yale. Just, you know. Just that. Oh, just the best law just, school in the country. Right, exactly. Yeah, just know. nothing, you know. Mm-hmm. But, um, no, about 3% of the women who play in professional tournaments, uh, 3% of the total people who are playing are, are women. So I was one of few, not okay. the only one. But Has you that... were very well known. I mean, I, 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 was. Was, I was part of the, the poker craze back in the, the aughts, <laughs> the uh, internet online poker craze. I'd never really played any poker. I remember the posters up in your office. Oh, yes, you did. They well, hope <laughs> you did. He's, he's, he's kidding, if you don't know Shane. My fair foster poster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 my head out. No, but uh, we, all, we all kind of got kept. Carried away a little bit in, the, in these years. One of my colleagues, Mike Steele, was yeah. also very involved in. And your name was was one of the most prominent. Yeah, names I had of that time. I had two really big advantages. Um, big advantage number one was that the people who were there at the beginning really had a big advantage. So I think a lot of the names that people think about were people who were there. That's right. Early on, mm. so because there were only a handful of. Us. I mean, the thing is that before poker was on TV, it was like a strange thing to end up in. So, you know, there were a handful of people playing high stakes poker that obviously when they came in with the cameras, they were focusing on us. And so that was obviously a big advantage to be early. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other thing, it was a big advantage to be a woman with four small children, which people thought was very strange. (laughs) So, you know, when ESPN is making a choice about who to stick a camera on, uh, luckily, it, it wasn't so much about my skill. That was very lucky for me. It was much more like, oh, here's this strange lady with four children who's playing poker, poker. You've, got a, you've got a very compelling backstory which, yeah you know i mean i've been watching a lot of olympics and uh, you know half of the olympics is seeing the athleticism and the tremendous human endeavor but you know i actually like kind you of like finding out about these people and stuff yeah. like that mm-hmm. it's 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 cool yeah yeah so i i had a good you know i, I was early i had a, a kind of anachronistic Mm-hmm. Story and then like I won enough stuff that right. I you know right. so I mean yeah. I did win but, some stuff. But, yeah. uh, Andy, it's interesting to hear you talk about this because even in the way you're describing your career, your success, your profile, the reason Adi had a poster of you in his office. Right. How did this happen? <laughs> Can I point this out? I don't know. By the way, I I assume I've you never bought met Andy yeah. until today. I assume you and, bought it and hung it up. Well, that That's makes how it, it happened. creepier that you had the poster. I just yeah. that. But when you talk about this, you're quick to attribute you make some chance attributions. You're saying, look, one of the reasons this happened was because I was there already when the TVs came on, when the cameras came on. And and I'm struck by that because it's a major theme in our life. How do we attribute chance and skill? When to, how right. do we attribute performance to chance and skill? And it's a major theme you pick up on in your book. And you talk about how difficult it is in poker to make those attributions because you can play hands poorly and win and you can play hands well and lose. Yeah, the, the, the sort of distinction between process and outcome, which mm-hmm. is something we belabor on this show mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I actually opened the book talking about this problem of resulting, which is how do we, how are we evaluating uh, decisions from afar, essentially. People who aren't, uh, we don't view as peers of ours or in competition with us. We'll do, uh, we do something called resulting, which is 
really tightly linking the quality of the outcome with the quality of the decision. So if something turns out wrong, clearly the person was an idiot. And if something turns out great, what a genius. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I mean, it's obviously like this is generally the problem. And then we have this different pattern, actually, when we're fielding outcomes for ourselves. So when we're trying to decide if we have something good happen to us, why did that happen? Um, we all, you know, we always default to well, we're a great decision maker. And when we had something, when we have something bad happen to us, mm-hmm. then it's just luck. Which mm-hmm. you know, people from afar don't get the benefit of that. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I open up talking about the Pete Carroll play, which is obviously quite famous mm-hmm. with the um, Seahawks, and he did not get the same treatment we give to ourselves, right? Nobody was like, oh, that was really unlucky. Which, by the way, there's you're, a very good argument that it was. Well, so, but, but you're pushing yeah. you're thin ice here because our man Shane is a huge Patriots fan over here. No, I mean, I, I found it. Yes, I found it to be, to be Tom Brady lucky in his play. Office. No, but I mean, I, I actually. <laughs> yes, it was a lucky play for the Patriots. He should be happy. You know, I am very happy. You want happy. luck to go your way. Yeah, that's right. But I mean, I also do think that that. I mean, I'm I'm kind of with you with that particular vignette in, in that I, I I think that. Carol and I guess Bevel was Bevel the offensive coordinator that that called that play. I don't. I mean, you know, we've been been over this for I guess three years now, but I think that too much of that outcome was attributed to you know an actual poor decision as opposed to the luck. Component I actually of it. had the pleasure of. Uh, Mike Lombardi reached out to me, and he mm-hmm. um, he's actually he has a book coming out in September, and he actually opens with that play as well. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't look at it from uh, he's not looking at it from the the way that I look at it, which is just sort of statistically, what are the chances of a an interception? What are the clock management issues? You know, you can pick up the two extra running plays anyway. Um, those kinds of things. He said actually that um, uh, the Patriots had worked on a formation that was supposed to look like a pass protection, but that was actually um, uh, running protection. So that was how they were lined up. So he, he said that, that um, Carol had seen that formation before. Mm. I guess it would it make sense. I think if he said it was it. like a fake nickel. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? I don't know. Anyway, he said it, it, they, they were lined up to look like they were defending um, the run, the rather. Run. Yeah, the yeah, run. Yeah. Sorry. They were lined up to look like they were defending the run. And So he kind of tricked Brady into calling the trick oh. Wilson no, 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 no. into going with the Right. No, it's the reverse. Yeah. So they, no. they, right. So yeah. they were lined up to look like they the were defending the pass. But, they but really what were... they were really pr- protecting was the run, which was a lineup that Carol that Carol seen would have seen. So, yeah. so he would have understood that they were that they were gonna they were gonna be defending the run. And in fact, I I saw something from Belichick a couple of days before the last Super Bowl where somebody was criticizing that play and Belichick himself defended it and said, no, they had seen that formation before and they understood that that was, Carol understood that was going to be a, a run protection. So from different angles. So Mike yeah. Lombardi comes at it from a completely different angle. So it's a little conciliance, which mm-hmm. I love, mm-hmm. um, where he's saying, given the formation that Carol saw, it was actually right to, to throw the pass. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's a lot of ways to get to that answer. But I think the interesting thing that happened in terms of the public looking at it was that it was just not an argument about whether it was the worst, you know, a bad play. It was, was it the worst play in Super Bowl history or the worst play in football history? <laughs> right. Were the only two questions. Yeah. And nobody gave him credit for having thought it through because the outcome was so spectac- spectacularly bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one of the things that, that uh, you, you bring up is this idea of the difference between the outcome and, and the process. But there's two kinds of 
uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And we often blend them very naturally and we don't understand them. One is randomness, like actual external randomness right. for which poker, it is very well documented exactly how that works and we <laughs> yeah. understand it. And in football and in sports, you see it also. But outside of that, there's another form of uncertainty, which is lack of information, uncertainty. Right. And that's not the same and they don't behave the same way. And then when you fail to take, in, when you don't get a good decision because of randomness, we understand that and you should be able to appreciate that. But when you fail because of, of, of misinterpreting the information or missing information, Information that's that you should take some or the responsibility for that is a bit different. So, bringing- so, so it depends. I think it, it the responsibility is definitely different in in the sense of questioning whether that information is discoverable, right? So, is it reasonable to assume that you could have discovered that information? Um, the way that I would think about it is when I'm playing poker, it's not reasonable for me to assume that I can discover what your cards are, right? I have to be guessing at that, and there's all sorts of things that I can't discover. For example, there's I can't discover when I'm playing football against you exactly what you were discussing in the locker room in terms of what plays you're going to mm-hmm. call. Like that that's just impo- impossible for me to discover. Now, if there's something that I could have discovered by watching game tape, right? And I don't see it, my bad. Yeah. Right? But that's just going to have to do with the tendencies, right? But I can't know the call that you're you're actually going to make. Unless you're I have the Patriots, you might know that. Well, <laughs> well, <laughs> Yes. For some teams, I, these things are, in fact, discoverable. I appreciate your admitting that. By the way, my brother... you're not brother, cheating, you're not trying, right? My brother, That's who's right. a huge Patriots fan as well, I happen to be an Eagles fan, which is just yeah. an accident no, of where I went to graduate I mean, it's school. been tough right. being in this city the last few weeks right. as well. Well, look, I keep saying, like, oh, I'm sorry, so sad for you. No, you no, get yeah, your I, I, I'm not looking for sympathy. But he yeah. actually sent me an article uh, which rated the amount of cheating by football teams, and he was like, look, the Patriots only averaged cheating. <laughs> <laughs> he was so excited. <laughs> but so I think that that's a, it's a, it's a question of did you not find out the information and you could have reasonably right and then it's on you and you need to go work on your decision process or is it something that really was unknowable yeah, and, and I think that this is a claim I've made for some time now there's actually some folks now doing work on these two different kinds of uncertainty that Adi talked psychologists doing and mm-hmm. I keep on waiting for them to, to, to show because I'm sure it's true that people underestimate they forever think it's epistemic which is a knowable versus aleatory right. they underestimate the amount of just pure oh, I didn't know there were words is, for this oh yeah look I, you're always telling us those, up later. Ali- That's, those are spelling actually aleatory for, for pure randomness and right. epistemic for just unknown so, so in our world where we come where we encounter this is say trying to classify an image an image is, uh, has a cat or it doesn't is one of my favorite right. examples. There's no uncertainty about that. The algorithms can't do it. Right. And they exactly. can't do it always because they just yeah. can't figure out how to de- figure out the right information. And But another example would be some of the other problems we work on is, is someone going to commit a crime after you let them out of the, out of jail? Well, that's unknowable. So yeah. right. there's there's but you do have information, and those are very two that's different kinds. That's it's, yeah. it's it's it, it depends on what you mean by unknowable, right? Because it's an epistemic problem, mm-hmm. which is what what is your definition, right? So uh, is it unknowable in the sense of if I flip a coin, do you know if it's going to land heads on the next try? The answer is no, but the probability is knowable, mm-hmm. right? So I know how often it will land, and those are two different. Uh, ways to think about it, and we confuse them, mm-hmm. Ab- which Ab- is really problematic. Enormously. That's right. Interesting to your point about this idea of you're underestimating the luck element always, right? You're always sort of putting it over on the knowledge element. Is I mean, we we see what happened with, um, for example, like I don't know how familiar you guys are with stocks, but the inverse VIX just like blew yes. up. But it was because people under you know that you're always underestimating what the volatility is. You're mm-hmm. always underestimating what the luck is, mm-hmm. partic- even when you're forecasting. Mm-hmm. 
right? Mm-hmm. You just think, oh, it's going to be less than it is. And then this instrument blows up and people are like, what? So <laughs> we're, we're talking with Annie Duke. Annie is a former professional poker player. She won the inaugural World Series of Poker. She has career earnings of over $4 million in poker. And she has a new book. And it's brand, it's brand spanking new. In fact, it's so new that still... Uh, it, if you walk in the Barnes and Noble at Rittenhouse Square, it's on the wall right there on, th- on the right of the door. You don't have to go to the back of the store. It's right oh, that's there. Exciting. Yeah. It's called Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. Um, we want to hear more about the book, but real quickly, we've been talking about the poker world and parsing skill from luck and what's noble and what's not. I'll tell you something we, I wouldn't have predicted, and that is that, that uh, Maria Konnikova would win the tournament that she entered. So you, I know you, I, I gather that you know Maria and you well, follow this. She's on the back of my book. So I hope I <laughs> yeah, she, Maria blurbs, <laughs> Maria blurbs your book. So Maria is a, is a columnist and, and a book writer. She's mm-hmm. a, she's a writer. And um, somehow she got involved with poker and entered this tournament. I think for initially it's kind of a journalistic thing, but then she, you must know the story better than me, but she wins the dang thing just in the last couple of months. Yeah, so it, it's not as sudden as you might think. She's been studying for a while, although it is quite a learning curve. So she's been she's been uh, really studying poker for a little over a year, and she had some amazing mentors. Her the main mentor that she's working with is Eric Seidel, who's a big character in my book, a big character in my life as a mentor. Uh, he's won over thirty eight million dollars in poker. So <laughs> he he didn't he didn't get to be famous just because he had four kids. Let's just put it that way. Um, so super, super smart guy. Actually, uh, one of the uh, at one point was one of the best backgammon players in the world. He doesn't really play anymore. He actually traded on the floor for a long time in options. Like, mm-hmm. very, very smart guy. And he uh, is mentoring her as part of a project for a book that she's writing. And then she's also, I think, another one of her main mem- mentors now is a guy named Phil Galfond, who's really a very, you know, so you have kind of two different styles because he's very, like, game theory optimal and um, that kind of work. So... She's got these incredible mentors that she's been working with, and she's super smart. I mean, Mm -hmm. she obviously wrote Mastermind, which is Mm -hmm. thinking like Sherlock Holmes. She wrote The Confidence Game, which is about um, grifters and Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And she's she's been in this cognitive science space and this decision science space. And I've always maintained that in order to be a really good poker player, the math is less important than the decision skills. Mm. the math at the base of it is somewhat simple. You're sort of repeating the same mathematical problems kind of over mm-hmm. and over again, right? It's just these pot odds questions. Mm-hmm. How much is money is in the pot? What's the probability I'm going to win the hand? Am I getting paid enough? You have to win? roll it forward also yeah, to apply yes, odds into the future. That can get co- somewhat complicated. It can get complicated, but you know, assuming that you're reasonable in mathematics, like you don't need a PhD right, no. in mathematics mm-hmm. to be great at it. But these these kind these issues about you know, decision skills, which is the really getting into the nuances of like human psychology and stuff like the that. nuances of human psychology, and then also remember, game theory is in the decision science space. Mm-hmm. So it's that it, it sits in the economics world, but that you know, I mean, that's really what you know. Somebody like Kahneman was, or John Nash was a yeah. game theorist, right? So, so. Andy, give us an example of these decision skills. Like, what's an ex- what's an example of something a trap that not as good poker players fall into that the best poker players don't fall into around decisions? Sure. So I, let me. Let me divide it into two pieces because there's two different types of traps. Um, let me give you an example first of something that would be purely a decision trap. Uh, and it has to do a little bit to do with sort of theory of mind and figuring out what do I believe that you believe. So a very, very common mistake that players make is that they react to what somebody does as if there's a one-to-one mapping. So if you bet strongly at me, People's initial reaction, their gut instinct, is that you have a strong hand. Um, and that is actually how most people will, will behave. 
So I would actually walk through with students this question. So, okay, so the board has an ace, a nine, and a three on it. They're not connected to each other by suit. Um, and you have three aces. Are you betting when you have three aces? Mm-hmm. Just like, boom, betting. And they're like, no. And I said, well, okay, are you threat- betting with three nines? And they would say, no. And I'd say, are you betting with three? And I'd go down the list. And I would say, well, why aren't you betting with those hands? And they'd say, well, because my hand is really, really good, and so I want to trap the other player. And I would say, well, then why do you think they're betting with such a strong hand? Mm-hmm. And they would go, oh. So um, <laughs> those, kinds of, those kinds of ways through thinking a hand don't come naturally to people. And they tend to go with their gut, and they don't kind of check it against uh, taking perspective and sitting in the other person's shoes and thinking, well, what, what would I do in that situation in order to come to the right conclusion? So that would be sort of in the decision space. The other thing that I think really separates very successful poker players from not so successful one is the emotional component. How good are you at not being reactive and getting really, really emotional when you're losing or when things aren't quite going your way? Or actually getting too overconfident when you're winning Mm -hmm. and really taking things as they come. And that's a different way that you get caught up in the outcome, Hmm. right, that can really mess you up kind of going forward. And I think that those two things are very important. So one of the things that intrigues me about poker, I've actually written about poker in various different aspects, usually in the interplay between luck and skill. There's one side of the poker world that says, you know, you can just break it down into buckets and analysis. And the play that you, you wrote, it's a you know completely unconnected board with one overcard, and, and here you go, and this is the bucket we're in, and when someone bets big, this is what you do. It's just like a lookup table, and it's all analytics, and yeah. that's it. You memorize the giant flow chart. giant flow flow right. chart, and you, we start with the rules and the basic stuff, and then you over over doesn't take that much time, and you've got it all down. And, and then there's the other side that says, you know, you really have to be reading people, and you have to, and all these psychological interplays really come in, and these emotional aspects, and that's the piece that dominant, dominates. Where do you fall on that spectrum? So I, I think, it, first of all, I think you can get there. I, I think you can't get there without some of the flow chart, number one. So I think that that's necessary. And I think that the other side is necessary, too, at a certain level. So I guess that my question would be, are you beating uh, you know, the games to make a living at it, right? Like, if if all I can do is give you the flow chart, I'm going to give you the flow chart. And in fact, my uh, brother kind of did this at the beginning of my career back when he literally the first time he played, he just gave me gave me a list of hands I was allowed to play. Right. That's the first so, step. Right. So that's the first step. So mm-hmm. he's that's part, the first step to a flow chart. Right. right. So it's it's. Let me get you these fundamentals. Does it need to be like completely filled out? Do I need all the Nash equilibria? <laughs> you know, all that stuff. No, but I can give you like a flow chart if this, then that. And I'm going to be able to stick you in, uh, you know, uh, to some kind of middle level game and you will beat it. If to become a world champion, though, that other stuff is so important because you can just blow your number one, you can blow yourself up with the emotions because then you're not managing your money well, you're taking on too much risk. And the minute that that happens, like, I don't care what your flowchart is. If you're risking 20% of your bankroll on a single time, you will go broke, like, period. So if you get yourself in an emotional state where you're not managing that stuff well, I don't care what your flowchart looks like. You're just not going to do well, right? So that that's kind of number one. And then number two, this reading piece is I can give you the flowchart, but those flowcharts also matter what range of hands I put you on. Now, when you're dealing with people who aren't, super experts where they're more intermediate it's okay if my range is kind of 
you know, Lucy, Lucy. <laughs> but when I get to the really top level, I better be able to range you really well. Because you also have the flow chart. So now well, we yeah, have I was, I was going to say, chart. I would assume That's a component right. of this is at the very top level. Aren't you guys basically operating off the same flow chart? How much yeah. variation is there in kind of the actual sort of hard strategy among, you know, if you watch the top it, it does seem that there is people. some variation. I mean, there, there is, and it, it comes from this other stuff. It comes from, first of all, how am I reading you? And right. then you have to remember, and this is true, you know, in sports as well. Like, are you, are you coaching against. Belichick, or are you coaching against, you know, Bill Walsh? You know what their tendencies are. Mm-hmm. The other thing that you know is you know how they view you. Mm-hmm. So what I used to say, for example, is that plays that might look optimal for you in terms of, for example, what your bluffing frequency should be, are going to be really different for me as, particularly as a woman, because people are going to, they're going to be, uh, for example, more willing to look me up. It, some people, depending on what your profile is, might be more willing to look me up, meaning call. Um, and then other people might be less willing to give me credit for a, mm-hmm. a creative play. So as long as I've got you sort of grouped properly, um, against a certain group of people, being a woman means that I could bluff more. And against a certain group of people, being a woman means that I could bluff less. And for you, people are generally going to kind of view you the same regardless, right? right? So you have to know, I've got to shift around within this table depending on how how effective I think that this particular play will be. So my bluffing frequency is going to be really different than right. yours. Mm-hmm. Right. We're speaking with Annie Duke, Annie, former professional poker player. She won the inaugural World Series of Poker Tournament of Champions. In that case, she beat 10 world champion opponents. And she is the author of a new book, Thinking in bets, making smarter decisions when you don't have all the facts. I want to ask you a question about your poker career, but it's related to the book. What what in the attributes that made you a successful poker player? What do you think you came by more or less naturally, and what did you most have to develop? Well, so I I am very sure that the thing I most had to develop was the emotional component. Mm-hmm. So when I was little. Uh, we used to play cards a lot in my family. Not not poker, by the way, but like gin and mm-hmm. uh, hearts and those kinds of games. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my dad is like one of the most competitive human beings on the planet. Like I always say, so I play a lot of tennis and I say my I, my return of serve is amazing because my father was not taking enough <laughs> off that ball when I was three. So <laughs> they were sort of coming flying at me. So I'm very good. My reflexes are good. Um so I was playing, my brother obviously is like a super smart guy and had the advantage of being two years older than me, which when you're like seven, it might as well be a lifetime mm-hmm. that he's nine. And then obviously my father, like a 40 year old man, doesn't even want to lose <laughs> to his kids. So uh, let's say it was a little cutthroat. And, you know, I wasn't being allowed, like nobody was being like, let's a- let Annie win this time. And a lot of the... I don't want to say a lot, like almost all of the games ended at some point with me like picking up the cards and just, you know throwing them around like Mm -hmm. against the wall and like storming out of the room in tears, you know, and then I would sort of calm down and come back in for more. Um, So I guess, you know, I don't know. But so I know that that was really, really hard for me. And And I remember, you know, when I first started playing, this was always really difficult for me, sort of the the feeling of unfairness when you lose. It's very deep within us, you know, that mm-hmm. particularly in a game like poker where you feel like maybe, you pl- you know, your tendency is to think that you played just fine. Mm-hmm. So then, like, why why was this so unfair that you lost, you know? So really trying to figure out, like, how do I get that piece under control? That was the biggest skill that I had to develop. And it it's hard. I mean, trust me, I was still getting upset at the end, you know, but... um 
I was getting better at it. Mm -hmm. And and getting better at it is actually the the way to go. Like as you guys know, very small incremental changes in your prob when you're, you're in your win probability make really big differences mm -hmm. in you know how much you end up making. So I think that the biggest thing really was this kind of Eric what Eric Seidel did to me, which was um, really forcing me to first of all not just kind of wallow in the feeling of losing. So when I when I went up to him and said, you know, just started complaining to him, I can't believe how unlucky I got and I was, you know, so sad. Mm. He literally said to me, is there a point to this story? And I was like, well, <laughs> I mean, I played the hand really well and this guy was such a fish and I can't, you know, he's like, so why are you telling me this? Like literally, if it was just bad luck, there's no point to you talking to me about mm -hmm. this. And he and what I realized and I really respected Eric and I really really wanted him to you know, engage with me. And I wanted, I wanted him to think that I was a good player and someone who was worth talking to and to like me that if I wanted to engage with him, I could engage with him on those terms. I had to figure out a way to ask him a question. I had to figure out a way to talk to him about strategy. Mm -hmm. Now, what was really great about that was, first of all, it stopped me from wallowing because I had to get into the front part of my brain, the prefrontal cortex and start thinking about, well, what is a question that I could ask him? But the actual real um, power of what he did was not the conversations we were having in the moment, but the fact that when I went back and played, I had to view the game through the lens of what am I going to ask him about later. Mm. Mm. So now what that does is it gets me to start discarding much more easily just kind of the bad stuff. And when the things are going wrong, I have to think about it as like, well, if I'm going to go talk to Eric about this later, let me think about what a question is. You know, mm -hmm. how could I have played this hand better? Could this have been because of something that I did? And then this was like the really big shift. On the hands that you win, you start doing that as well. Instead of just saying like, oh, I won. I'm so great, which, again, isn't a question. That's just you know, bragging, um, you think, oh, I won. Was there a better line of play that I could take? Or, or maybe I butchered the hand. And I remember like the first time I went up to Eric and I was like, I won this hand, but man, I, I think I really butchered it. I think I really <laughs> got lucky. And he, his face just lit up and it was like engagement. Mm -hmm. And that kind of like social reinforcement mm -hmm. is the best way to get this emotional component under control, which really did not come naturally to me at all. So Andy, you wrote this book because you believe poker has something to say about people's lives away from the poker table can I want to hear you you know we're down to just a couple of minutes but yeah. what are the some of the key points that you think I think what you've just said is profoundly applicable to the rest of our lives but more generally what are the main lessons you wanted to convey in this book about what poker has to say to the rest of us for the rest of our lives sure I, I think the, the first thing is to understand that beliefs are always in progress they're always under construction because of the fact we have beliefs that are predictions which obviously there's a luck element so they have to be uncertain but also because we don't have all the knowledge we can't go out and get all the information we need so we should always view our beliefs in progress which means that we should be saying I'm not sure a lot more than we do and we shouldn't be going around saying I'm certain I know this is going to how, how it's going to turn out there's all sorts of really wonderful things that come out of saying I'm not sure. The main one is that you become completely open-minded, number one, because when people have something to offer you, it's just helping your belief that's in progress and under construction. It's helping you to construct the belief. But it invites people to be your collaborators. Because when I express a belief to you with some way of saying uncertainty, I could say I'm 62%. I could say, well, I only read it in this one place. 
So I only have this one piece of information. That's another way to convey uncertainty. It gives them an opportunity to contribute. Now they're, they're, yeah. you just open the door and yeah. they'll, they'll jump in. They're mm-hmm. eager to tell you what they know. Whereas it, when you express things with certainty, it tends to shut the conversation down mm-hmm. or at least make it combative if they, mm-hmm. if they do. Um, so that, that's kind of number one. So say I'm not sure a lot. Number two is what we just discussed is that this is really hard to do on your own. We're naturally kind of built this way. So invite collaborators in with you that are going to hold you accountable. Mm-hmm to creating a more accurate view of the world. So mm-hmm. one of the things that you really learn in poker that I hope gets across in the book is that there's a difference between being right and being accurate. Being right is is essentially processing information in the world to affirm that what you believe is true. Hmm. So it's just affirming your priors, right? I'm going to I just want to be right. Whereas having a commitment to accuracy means I want to construct the most unbiased accurate view of the world. And think about if we're placing a bet, who's going to win in a bet? The person who's processing the world to be right or the person who's trying to construct more accurate views of of the world. And so this commitment to accuracy with accountability to other people is one of the best ways to get there. It's the anti-echo chamber, mm-hmm. right? So that mm-hmm. that's kind of number two. And then number three uh, that I want people to take away from this is please do some time traveling. Start realizing that the future version of you will exist, so a lot, if you think about this, why, why do we say to ourselves, oh, this bad thing that happened, that was just bad luck? And this good thing that happened, it was so great. Now, if I ask anybody, do you think that's a good way to learn? They'll all say no. Like if, if I just ask you an absence of the outcomes coming in, everybody says no, that would be horrible. I'm not going to become better. And if I say, do you want to become smarter and more knowledgeable and better at what you do? They'll all say yes. So then why are people doing this? It's in conflict with what the long-term goal of improvement is. And it's because in the moment, it feels better. In the moment, saying that was my fault maybe doesn't feel so good. Mm-hmm. So get in touch with future you. And start taking care of that person and have compassion for the future version of you. And that helps you get over this in the moment way that you're just trying to sort of like reason toward being right. Mm-hmm. It, that, that, what you just said there reminds me of a line in your book that really jumped out to me. You were quoting a novelist and screenwriter who'd worked with the Robert Redfords of the world, the Steve McQueens of the world. And he was once asked what it meant to be a movie star. And, mm. and this guy, William Goldman, quoted an actor who explained the type of characters the actor wanted to play. He said, I don't want to be the man who learns. I want to be the man who knows. Right. That's the problem, mm-hmm. right? That's the problem. That's well, how people yeah. want to live. And, 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 and Andy's suggesting, no, that we actually want, you don't want to live life as the man who knows. You want to live life as the man who learns. You have exactly. to fight that instinct to be the man who, the man who knows. Andy, thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much for the, for the book here. It, it, it looks like a fantastic book. And I can tell from what little I've seen of it so far that it's grounded in the science that we talk about so much on the show. You've worked with a lot of folks that we know and love around here. We wish you the best with the book, with the book, and we wish you the best with your work. Thank you. That was Annie Duke, former professional poker player. She won the inaugural World Series of Poker Tournament of Champions. She had a career in poker before moving on to other things, and she has a brand new book out. You can find this book in your stores now or on Amazon, Thinking in Bets making smarter decisions when you don't have all the facts. Annie Duke, thanks again for being here, Annie. That has been three quarters of our show. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. If you are listening 8 to 10 Eastern, give us a ring, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. 
If you're not listening live, you can still email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. In the Twitter sphere, we follow all of our guests. We tweet about sports analytics over the course of the week. Not a bad way to stay on top of what's going on in that world. We have one quarter now down not to even about, a quarter. not even 20, 25 minutes left in the show. We are just wrapping up a conversation with Andy Duke. Andy was in the studio with us, which is always fun to be in the studio with folks. Andy, of course, a former high-profile professional poker player and author of a new book that's out like this month. It's a book that's, I think, well-grounded in, in, in social science and she worked and talked with a lot of folks that we work and talk with. Thinking Thinking in Bets is the name of the book. Thinking in Bets. She's talking about how tools that make professional poker players can help us outside the poker table, away from the poker table. Guys, what did you think about that conversation? Oh, it was fantastic. I thought it was like, uh, like kind of hearing her perspective on uncertainty. Obviously, it echoes a lot of what we talk about in, sure does. in, in studio as well. But, I mean, obviously, it's it's nice to kind of have that. I mean, I, I guess poker is a tangible kind of thing I, to talk to, to, to kind of frame that conversation. I love the educational angle in the sense that the way she described. Well, would you do that if you were in if you yeah. were in their situation? So why do you think that they're doing that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is just an incredible way of thinking about it. It's almost it's, it's adversarial, and this is yeah. what this is what we advocate in the sense: take your idea and try to break it. By putting yourself in a different position and looking the other uh, from the other direction. No, and I mean like I, I, a great it, way it's of thinking. Very comp- and it's also very compelling to kind of you know because I think this is I mean obviously she talked about it as one of the big kind of challenges of, of, of becoming a better poker pro. It's a challenge. I mean, and just like her book is supposed to be about poker transcending to real. Li- I mean, to the rest of our lives. That is right. something that I think we're all challenged by. Myself especially is trying to put yourself in somebody else's shoe. Like actually viewing things from out from the outside, uh, an outside perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly difficult. Cool. That's a neat thing about poker and what she's talking about. It's not one discipline. You actually bring multiple disciplines. The frameworks that she's talking about come from many different places. What you've just talked about is really from economics. This is mm-hmm. very much a, a game theoretic way of thinking about the world. That's different from straight decision making. It doesn't. I mean, most of the decision making field it doesn't involve a strategic interaction. It's mostly just about you know risk-taking and the preferences and things like that, which are an important part of what she's talking about, but she's blending it. And then you've got all the psychology of understanding other people. It, it really is a nice set of tools that she can draw on in this, in this book. One of the, the ones that, that jumped out to me, I, she, she had a lot to say about staying on top of your emotions and not letting your emotions get in the way of your decision. Got to follow that chart, even though your emotions are saying break away from it. Right. And... And she named that as something that she had to get better at over time. And it reminded me of my, my, my buddy Rufus Peabody, who's my partner in Massey Peabody. But more importantly, he's made a, a, a life of professional sports betting since the, the, the day he graduated from Yale University. And I've learned a lot from him. I mean, he's, you know, he's whatever, how much younger he is than me. But he, he has taught me about about equanimity in the face of big wins and big losses. And it's from experience. I mean, he might have been geared up that way as a kid, but mostly it's from experience. When you bet as much as professional sports bettors do, as frequently as they do, you get accustomed to the ups and downs and you don't get pushed around as much. So, for example, I think he had a bad Super Bowl. You know, pro- they, they, these guys yes, do the, it. The, the smart money lost a lot of money. Well, it was props more than... it was props, props okay. It was props more than the game itself. And 
And it, it turns out that there's so much action on props, and you can actually bring analytics to prop bets. Prop bets are like who's going to win the first, who's going to make the right. first touchdown, or who's going to, how many catches will some receiver get? All these kind of finely detailed things. That and the trouble with those bets is that they tend to be highly correlated. They're, you know, the game. This was a That's high right. scoring game. Yeah. And they all kind of they all in one went direction. one way, and it and it got it got in the way of Rufus for this year. But he was like, you know, he was like, so one, I think it was one of his worst Super Bowls ever, which is a, a meaningful thing. And yet he was like, ah, you know, that's the way it goes. That's the way it goes. Well, listen, Vegas lost boatloads of money when the Cavs lost in the NBA Finals two years ago. Mm -hmm. And that's because the betting line was completely inaccurate and they knew it. And there was so much money on the Cavaliers mm -hmm. and they just took the other side and they lost three, four hundred million dollars. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. They won it all back the next year. Yeah, right. So <laughs> that's what you learn over time. And. You know, it's it's been the received wisdom in, in my field in decision making is that the only people that are really calibrated, this goes back to Ken Palm, actually our first guest today, the best calibrated prognosticators are weathermen mm -hmm. or weather people. Because they have they, that humility or whatever. But, but it's built from experience. Yeah. It's because they make predictions and they get feedback the next day. Unambiguous. Yeah. Did it rain? Actually, it rained. Did it rain? No, it didn't rain. Most of us don't have that but kind of feedback a, in our life. But there isn't a public perception of accuracy. So you don't know where people stand on this. I mean, there isn't. When you watch the. the I, I, I subscribe to a number of different weather applications just because I'm interested and I bike and you kind of want to know what the weather is when you the day before when you get on the bike. It matters. And there's no nothing attached to any of those, those apps I use that says this is how accurate we are compared to this one i'd love to see that well you but the weatherman knows and as ken said the meteorologists they know when they put their forecasts in even if they're not standing in front of a camera in a, in a newsroom in philadelphia they do talk to each other they know they know whose predictions are what and moreover they know personally what they said and what they didn't most of us don't have that situation i i'm certain that sports betters are also people who are well calibrated because of this feedback. And it wouldn't surprise me if financial traders, I've come to believe, you know, in, in, our students go into finance, if you go into finance, used to, historically, the two paths were trading or corporate finance, like investment bankers. And there's a big difference between the kinds of feedback and the judgments you have to make on those two paths. Traders get feedback every day. You're going to learn real quickly whether you have the ability to, to forecast what uh, an asset is going to do because of the frequency of feedback. And the, all of these, including poker, stand out as an exception because we typically don't get better because we don't get that kind of feedback that allows us to learn. But I'm going to interject and in, in comment that in trading, you can get a sense of what you're going to do 99% of the time pretty quickly. But the big issue is those catast catastrophic events, yeah. which happen sufficiently rarely that you, if you're not prepared for them, uh, interesting. you blow up. Right, I mean, right, right. And, and Annie mentioned that. Learn. And Annie mentioned that is that any estimation of of a variance is always an underestimate, yeah. because there's unobserved variance in a process, mm -hmm. and until it happens, mm -hmm. you've 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 underestimated. Mm -hmm. But but if you if you if you throw that thing wide enough to be robust, then, to you're, any then possible, you're not so useful. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> So you, you're talking about you have to take some certain you have to take yeah. a, a certain amount of risk. The trouble is that people they underestimate they're too far one side. They're they're systematically biased to underestimate the amount of variance. So um, terrific terrific interview with Annie. I wish her the best with this book. I do. I'm only you know a, a couple chapters into it, but I can tell that it's grounded in the kind of stuff that allow us to recommend it strongly. Thinking in bets by Annie Duke, and for that matter, the Ken Palm interview in the in the first half hour. You know, Ken's best known for his basketball stuff, but coming out of that meteorology world, yeah, it's it's distinctly connected to it's distinctly connected to everything that we typically talk about on this show. 
there, uh, there are some other sports. We've basically talked about Olympics, and we've talked a little college basketball with Ken, and we've talked some poker with Andy Duke. Adi, so, you're usually chomping at the bit to talk baseball. What's I going would love on to here? talk baseball. I yeah. certainly, I mean, the one Tell of the, us about baseball. Well, of course, spring training has begun, yeah. which is always exciting. The actual season of spring training games has First yet games to start. Are They're this, this week, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, and we also have some big signings, which uh, I'd like to potentially talk about. We have J.D. Martinez yeah. has been picked up by the Boston Red Sox, which is yeah, always interesting a- because they need a bat for their lineup. Yeah, no, and I mean, I, it, it, it was sort of a natural fit that I, I think everybody kind of saw coming. This was not a particularly surprising signing. I, I just think it was sort of a microcosm of this entire offseason and that it just took forever to actually happen, right? And it I did. think we're, I, I think this offseason has been super interesting kind of from, you know, from the perspective of, like, the lack of activity, that, well, like, this really is something right. where owners um, either collectively or just kind of individually have, have decided – you know, we're not going to take these big kind of free agent risks as much, or we're going to kind of let the market, we're going to wait out the players. I actually think that the, um, the the owners have realized that there's much less value in free agents than they historically used to believe. Yeah, no, and I think, I, I think right, I mean, I think that's, we, we've talked about that in years past, that I think there was an era where free agents were, you know, kind of the way you built your that's team. Right. Um, in part because, you know, baseball players, for some un- unknown reason, were able to kind of play, in, you know, were able to have these late career revivals. And so signing somebody to a eight-year contract when they're 30 was not the craziest thing, idea ever. But now we're back to kind of normal aging. You'd actually, you know, it's, it's interesting. But, and that's a crazier thing to do now. But I actually think the real sea change in baseball, I think in sports in general, but baseball in particular, is the... Reversal. You have these young players who are absolutely terrific. And I don't think we used to see the dominance. I mean, if you take a look at the Mike Trout is, of course, the poster boy for this. Guys like Bryce Harper. Um, just incredibly high-level performance by guys in their early 20s. Oh, and, I don't know about that. I mean, prior to that, Alex Rodriguez, Ken Griffey so, Jr. I mean, so we if can you name at, ones from so like every at, era. So I'm not, I'm not just, I'm actually probably quoting something from 538 where there was a an analysis done to look at the war contributed by guys under 25 okay. over, era, over, over the eras. And it looks like, at least from that analysis, that there's been more war contributed by young players today than there has been in the past. Oh, I think that's true, but that's because more teams are playing more young players. So the total amount of war is obviously going so you think it's so you think it's things a function have gotten younger but i i mean i think your assertion sounded more like you know well, i'm each, actually wondering each, uh, you, young uh, uh, any particular young paper on average is more likely to contribute higher war so, than they were in generations so what past. i'm 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 actually going to push that push that idea and i'm wondering whether or not in dominating in improvements in, in training techniques has actually affected these things so what is it what is it we're getting we're, when this is actually we're getting specialization we're getting incredible technique particularly in pitching where they have these techniques to to uh to teach people how to throw extremely hard which they didn't used to and we've seen that in in really a sea change in the sport and 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 potentially this is affecting the, the yeah uh, the i mean free agent well, well right i mean i guess if, if there have been kind of advances in training to such an extent that people just learn baseball better now then yeah of course that will kind of like the kind of immediate result of that will be the younger players of this generation are better at baseball than the younger players of previous generations i just yeah, I mean, I, I don't think total war contributed by young players is the right way to, you know, conclude that unless you're somehow norming by the number of young players that are actually 
in the league and how much they're playing. Before we go to our last segment, one last question. Did either of you watch the NBA All-Star Game? or I watched highlights. You watched highlights? I did. I did. Well, I started I with the National Anthem, right? which was just, <laughs> dude, I, this just seems like a complete uh, tangent, but the National Anthem was horrible. It was controversial. Did That's Meatloaf sing it? Who's Fer- Fergie? Is that, yeah. Because <laughs> Meatloaf does famously bad anthems. <laughs> yeah. Roseanne Barr and Meatloaf that. together doing a duet. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, we talked last week about whether the new format would make any difference. Apparently and, people enjoyed it. Yeah, well, it, it was a competitive game. People seemed to play a little defense, which was a change of pace. It was lower scoring. Folks are giving the new format some credit. We don't know. I mean, it's one one time. But yeah, it was encouraging that it, you know, there's a little more spirit to that game than there used to be. Um, we, we, we talked last week also about... Moving to a final segment, kind of, and we're going to make this. We we got enough support when we raised yeah. this idea that we're going to make this a, a regular feature going forward. But to wrap up shows with an, an over under segment where we 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 ask questions and and take positions on whether some number will be over or under a benchmark. Are we actually writing these down so we can backtrack? I we, mean, I know this well, is kind of part of it. Well, right. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. We, I suppose I could listen to. Listen we need to myself. get a big board. Maybe we can we take a board. We need, board. We need to get a big board. board. I, right. want, I want us. I so want a head-to-head competition. We, here. Well, we, we just talked about feedback right? yep. and learning, and, yep. and and this, and it would be appropriate to get feedback and learning on this. But we also want to say that we're we'd love to get some over/under suggestions from our audience, and so you can write us by email. You can tweet at us. We're going to collect these over the course of a week. And when we roll onto the show, we might have generated some ourselves, but we're also going to collect some from from people who are listening and would suggest questions for us. So Adi's got this week's, and we're going to roll into this last segment, this over-under segment. Adi's going to lead us on this one. All right. So one of the things that Eric Eric has produced a bunch of our over-unders in the past, and he's been um, generating the, the over-under target with and and announcing it that it's it's kind of at the fifty percentile. He's using he's been thinking about it. So, for example, we we predicted the number of of tournaments, uh, the over under on number of Grand Slams that that Federer would win, and he's giving you a number that's right at the expected value. Isn't I'm that not kind of how over unders typically uh, well, would work, or no? Well, it could be, but I could. Uh, I mean, so you can give, give us something in the 99th percentile, and I'll take the under. No, that's right. <laughs> the, but the issue is, is that you don't. We wouldn't necessarily know when the, what that value is until you got the back story. So I'll start with my first over-under, which we prepared for earlier, which is the Olympic over-under for the United States. Mm. And so I'll give you the background. So in the past, the Yankees, not the Yankees, the, the Americans have won, last year they won 28, last Winter Olympics they won 28, the previous it was 37. And as of last night, they had won 12 medals and we were two-thirds of the way in. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give you an over-under and, you're gonna, and I'm going to give you the background on it. So the forecast is about 25 medals. So over under still the, up, still the updated for the, the updated forecast was about twenty five medals for the United States. So over under, under uh, under, they're not considering non stationarity. Something systematic yeah. change so, or correlation. You know the correlation across events. So uh, all right, I would. Uh, it's interesting how you jumped immediately on the fact that the residual so far has been so deeply negative. But this is an updated. Yeah. This, is a, this is essentially they're not updating their system. They're, I bet they're pl- applying the same system to a new current number. Yeah. All right, I and like we, it. We so want to update the system. We have a, a quick jump on the under as that yeah. forecast, which would would be no matter what. Those are that's a terrible year for the United, for the United States. Yeah. So do you actually have a forecast? You want to throw out an actual number? I would have no basis for no it. basis. Twenty two. Twenty two. All right. I so, mean, I, that, that's me throwing out an actual number. 
Under the constraint that's under 25. All right. Well, here's Shane has my proxy. So, okay. So let's move on to. I actually have four, so I don't know how many we're going to go through. Mm. So I have two from basketball. We'll start with the one that I thought was interesting, which is the current power rankings for the Golden State Warrior in terms of rank are not number one. They are range between two and three. Mm. So I'm going to give you over, under, on one and a half for the final season power ranking for the Golden State Warriors. Oh, now, like whether they're the number, basically, are they the number one team at the end of the season or not? That's right. Why? Let's talk about why Why would it change between now and the end of the year? I guess, there, is there anything other than... It's tight. I mean, essentially, looking only at records and performance, it's pretty tight. If you believe a power ranking, they're not tricked by noise. You know, that's, that's the whole right. point of these power rankings. And so they, they wouldn't be working through and getting to a truer signal it would it would have to be that they actually elevate their play over time or that they haven't had they had injuries or there's an injury injury to whoever's in one who's currently in one now we allowed to know that as far as uh, well yeah it's the best team in the west i guess it's san antonio right no no no, houston 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 Houston, and then number two in, um, in some in some of the polls is toronto Mm-hmm. Yeah, best right, team right, in the right. East. Well, you know the thing is, if you had to, if you wanted, if you wanted to consider regression, as good as Golden State is, you would worry about them falling down, not up. I'll go, I'll go under. If I'll go worse, I don't know what one point five, a higher number, which is a worse power ranking. Okay, so you were going under, under in some sense, a higher number. So you're predicting them to end the season lower than one and a half, lower one and a half. Yeah, yeah, not the number one ranked team. Correct. I predict they will be the number one ranked team going to the playoffs. So I'll take why, the, Shane? I guess, the over on that. To be contrarian, mostly. <laughs> it's also priors. I <laughs> this mean, you is why, because this I don't is why we need scores on the right. I don't understand why um, it seems like, you know, the NBA it, it seems very Markovian year, year, year to year. And I, I, I don't think I've seen enough evidence to say that Golden State isn't the best. Team. It's interesting. That I Markovian, like Markovian would lead to Golden State being number one. That's because right. Any yeah. other Markovian process you'd expect would be regressive, and yet you're yeah. saying no, it's going to be number one because yeah. of chance. Well, interesting. All right. Well, I have two more. I don't know if we have time for them. The other one that I have, we'll do quickly. It's a local one. Where do you think the? Uh, I'll give you the over under on the the position in the East of the Sixers. Right now, they are number six. Where will they end up the season? Over under six. Now I want to be Markovian. I want six. I can't have six. <laughs> oh, you know, I've, no, that's I'm, a mistake. No. I really shouldn't give you. A, I should give you one that has to split. So um, I'll make it five and a half. Yeah, I'm gonna I'll, whatever you give me. But I, I need it. I need it to be. Hold on. Are they six right now? Right now they're number six in the East, and but it's tight here. I like non-stationarity again. This is a young team. This is a young team. You think they're actually improving at a higher rate than a team typically does because of their youth? I mean, hell, this has been Simmons' first season, so. Wherever they are now, I'm going to take the trend and go that they're going to end up better than they are now. Okay. I like it. Over. Well, I, I will take the under. I think it's been contrarian. Kind of, I am contrarian. mostly to be contrarian. No, no, that's not all. That's not uh, all. All right. I just think, you know, there's several teams in the East. Um, I, I think you could argue the same way. Right? I'll give you I'll give you one extra fact. I don't know if it'll change your forecast. They're plus minus, so their season yeah, plus. They're plus two. Uh, which puts them actually in third place in the East in terms of the really? actual it, and it, very very tight. Yeah, and I, also the Cavaliers are like point oh one or point one. They're we, barely a bit more points. Sh- than... We should have asked for lots more yeah. information. Like, are they, well, you know, where are they versus? Got to their... learn to ask. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Share only what I know, though. Yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> so I'm going. I'm personally going to go go uh, over. Do you have better? Do than... you have Do you have any more? Is I that... have one more. Okay, the, quick, quickly. J D Martinez signed by the Red Sox. Yep. How many home runs last year? He had forty five. 
Oh, I think he hits. Uh, well, I'm giving you an under. I'm going to give yeah. you. I'm going to give you. I'll give you 42 as an over under mark. No, well, so I'm regressing that down. I think under. Under. I've got to ask questions. I mean, yeah. he, he's in Fenway, so I suppose that should be helpful, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. For doubles. Uh, how's the pitching in the AL East? Good. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to go under then. Yeah. All right. Good fun, guys. That is another segment of Over Under. This is a new tradition here. Give us your questions. If you're listening, you want to tweet questions at us or email questions, let us know what over-unders you want us to tackle next time around. That has been another two hours of Wharton Moneyball. We do this every Wednesday, 8 to 10, for Shane, Adi, and Cade. Thank you for listening. For Eric Bradlow, come back around, Eric. We'll see him back in the studio soon, I'm sure. To Daniel Bruno, thanks for the help holding down the soundboard there. Matty Dots, the boss man, our producer. We'll all be back next week. Come back and join us. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.